If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we have been doing a Bible series through Mark. We haven't really made it that far, though. <laughs> we made it up to chapter 8, and we still have like eight chapters left, and I'm responsible for covering the rest of it in just two sermons. But don't worry, we're not going to like go through everything. I've just chosen two topics, and this today will be a part one, and next week will be a part two. Um, but if you are curious about what has led up to this, I encourage you to go back and listen to the other sermons. Um, Pastor David last week gave an amazing message on the turning point of Mark, how Jesus displayed himself as a, the authoritative figure over all demons and sickness and, and the trials of life. And then at the turning point, when he reveals that he's the Messiah, now we have him revealing himself as the authoritative one over suffering and death itself. And so today is going to be covering that second half, Jesus as the authoritative one from this turning point on. But I do recommend that you listen to Pastor David's sermon because it was really good. All right, I will try to do just as enough justice to this today. So I've entitled my message, The Choice, if you're taking notes. We're going to be talking about the choice that Jesus made in the Garden of Gethsemane. So today we read through that passage. I won't go through it again, but it's a pretty famous passage, pretty famous passage of where Jesus goes to the garden and he's overwhelmed with the anguish of having to go to the cross, right? He's filled with, we wouldn't say fear, but trepidation, the knowing the weight of what going to the cross will look like and asking the Father if he, there's any other way, if there's any other way outside of going to the cross for the purposes of God to be fulfilled. He's faced with an ultimate choice, which is, to follow through with the plan, obey the Father, or to try to do something in his own will, his own strength, or his own way. He is God. He is part of the Trinity. So if there is another way, then he knows what it is, right? If there is another way, then all he has to do is ask the Father, hey, let's do it the other way. I don't think I can do this. And it's easy enough for him to follow something in his own will, in his own desires, rather than reflecting and submitting to what God has. So we see him do is plead with God multiple times. God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But if not, then, you know, like, I will submit myself to your will. It's like this famous, like, just famous, famous phrase. Not what I will, but what you will, God. Right? Not what I will, but what you will. And for us, we must really connect with this like we have to connect with this because we are people who are given free wills we ourselves have a choice to make every day about whether or not we are going to submit our will to the father who loves us and has the best in store for us or if we're going to walk in our own way and follow our own wills but to be honest it's hard i don't like constantly think every decision i make in the day has like you know an eternal impact i'm not necessarily thinking through every decision about the will of the Father, just because it's human nature to, like, just do what's easiest for us. It's human nature to just do the thing that we want to do and follow our own desires. And at the end of the day, it's only later when we realize the consequences of our actions. Dang it. I really shouldn't have done what I wanted. I really should have listened to what God was asking me to do. But you know what? The moment's passed now. What do I do? And so here... This story is really relevant to us because we get a model of application. What is it like to follow the will of God? How do we follow the will of God? Even in the midst of like 
huge obstacles or temptations that will pull us away. And then what's it worth? Like, what's it worth to follow the will of God? Yeah. So, let's moving forward. Have you ever experienced a place in your life where you felt broken? Wow, okay. We have two honest people in this house. <laughs> where you feel broken or maybe perpetually dissatisfied with something. Perpetually dissatisfied. Yes. Or restless. You don't understand why you are where you are in the present. I love this participation. You guys are great. We were perpetually restless about where we are currently or maybe where we're going. We don't know what the future holds. And so we're constantly caught up in this like, I feel like there's better and I'm not there yet. And I feel like I need to be whole, but I'm broken. I'm, I want to be joyful and filled with joy all the time, but I'm dissatisfied. And we're like constantly in this tension. And the only way to get out of this tension is to make the choice that Jesus made. It's to submit our will to God. So let's look at it. The famous phrase, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus goes into the garden, he says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is very interesting to me. For a couple of reasons. The first one is that he says, if it were possible, it's like it says, if it were possible, and then says, all things are possible. Jesus is God. He's intimate with the Father. He knows what's possible and what's not possible, right? This is never revealed to us in this passage, but if there was another way, Jesus knew what it was, and yet he's demonstrating a model for us to follow. So that's number one reason why it's interesting to me. But number two, is that it patterns after something that we know very well. Jesus is in the midst of a garden praying. Is there any other garden that you know from the Bible? Yes, very famous, the Garden of Eden. Even if you're not in the church, you know the Garden of Eden, right? Where Adam and Eve fall for the first time. And it's very interesting by the nature in which they fall and what leads them to fall, and how Jesus redeems that through this prayer in the garden. So we look at the Genesis passage. It says, he said to the woman, this is the serpent speaking, right? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So you have the beginning of doubt that's introduced here, where the serpent is like, did God actually say? Is his word actually reliable? Can you actually trust him? And then it continues. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit. So here, after the seed of distrust is placed by the serpent, there's an idea that comes along with this distrust, that God is either not good 
or he is withholding something good from me. God is not good, or he's withholding something good from me. And this, the serpent is revealing this to me by telling me that this, this fruit is actually good for food, and it's good for me to become wise. And why would God tell me not to eat it? So now, the decision that she actually has to make is, do I determine what is good for myself? Rather than listening to what my father has told me is good. It's like the ultimate sin that causes the result of every other sin in our lives. is saying that I am the author who gets to say what's good for me. I get to determine what's right and wrong. I get to say that in this circumstance, God may have said that this, this, this is like righteousness. But actually, I feel like if I just do it this way, it could be better, you know. If God said, like, don't tell lies, but then in this circumstance, honestly, I feel like lying isn't that bad, right? We've now said, I am God. I decide what's right and wrong. It's my will over God's will. Why? Because inherently, I don't understand the outcome of what God's will is, and I don't trust that his will is fully good for me. And that's what takes place here in the garden. Is she, there's a seed of mistrust. God's not fully good. So I need to determine what's good for myself. But then you have Jesus, who's in the, gar- the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. <laughs> the garden of Gethsemane. And he's faced with a similar decision as Eve was. To make a decision that's good. But unlike Eve, he doesn't make a decision that's good for himself necessarily. He makes a decision that's good for everyone else. He's faced with death, and not just death, but suffering, great suffering that none of us could ever imagine. Most of us could never imagine. And he chooses in that moment, you know what? It's okay if this is not good for me. I will still submit to the Father's will. I'm still going to follow what he has set out because it's going to be good for everything. And so you can see my head, my subtitle there, facilitated redemption in God's choice, the son of God, Jesus Christ, to do what was better for others and deny himself, to submit his will to God rather than trying to determine what was good on his own. He completely redeems the narrative of the garden. He completely rewrites the story. Now, what's interesting, when we think about Jesus, we think about him paying for our sins. Like, he takes the penalty for our sins by dying on a cross. But Jesus had two parts of obedience, two, like a before and after of obedience. And one of them was dying on the cross and taking the penalty for our sins. But the other was actually lived out through his life by fulfilling all righteousness. You see it in the beginning of his ministry when John the Baptist is like, um, like, I can't baptize you. And Jesus is like, you have to baptize me. And John is like, no, but I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should baptize me. And he's like, no, you have to because we need to do it to fulfill all righteousness. What a mysterious phrase. What do you mean you need to do it to fulfill all righteousness? Because Jesus lived, Jesus needed to live a perfect life on our behalf so that all his deeds would be credited as mine. It's like I'm a twin. I'm a twin. I have a twin sister. 
She looks exactly like me, and our teachers could never tell us apart, ever, even though we took our class the entire year, right? They'd all be like, eh, Cecilia, and I'm like, no, I'm Emily, you had it right the first time. And people always ask us, hey, do you ever take your tests for each other? We're like, no, <laughs> that's wrong. <laughs> But people constantly ask, it was so fun. You could trick your teachers. No one would ever know. And honestly, I could take her test for her and give her straight A's in the areas that she was weak in. And she could give me straight A's in the areas that I was weak in. And no one would ever know the difference. This is what Jesus did by living a righteous life. He took your test for you. The test that you would never be able to pass on your own. He took it for you. And when God looks at it, he doesn't know the difference. It's credited to you as if you did it yourself. And so that's why in this moment when he makes this decision to submit his will to the Father, it redeems everything, redeems the garden, and credits it on our behalf. That we now have the ability and can walk in the model of Jesus to learn how to walk in the will of the Father and not our own will. Isn't that crazy? It's like, whoa, like you rewrote everything in like one, one moment of saying not my will, but your will. Hmm. Oh, I just said that. <laughs> hmm. It's all good. And so, this was not an easy decision, though. As simple as it is. It's just, it's as simple as a yes and no. Yes, God, your will first. No, God, not my will. So simple. It's like so easy to compute in the mind and understand and yet it's so difficult to follow through in the heart because there's so much temptation there's so much of our own flesh and our own desires to serve ourselves and yet jesus who knows that all things are possible says god if it is still your will for me to fulfill this He's saying here, like, if all things are possible for you, like, give me another option. But if I have to take this, then it is possible for you to carry me through as well. And that's for us as well. If God has called us to a difficult decision to follow his will, to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses, then he will make it possible for us to follow through, right? Hmm. Oh, hey, this is not in the right order. Okay, there we go. Okay, so it's not easy. I should preface this correctly. It's not easy, and Jesus already knew that it was coming. He's not in the garden going, this could make or break the Father's will. I'm going to pray, and God's going to change his mind. Because he knew from the beginning what was going to happen. It's not like he was sitting in heaven, checking on the events of the world down there and looking at Isaiah prophesying, saying to him, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of living. And Jesus is reading it going, Dad, did you make this decision without me? Well, Holy Spirit, where were you? I thought you had my back. Like, why are you throwing me under the bus like this? Why do I have to be the sacrifice? That was not happening in heaven. This decision was made in the beginning before, before creation happened. 
How do we know this? Well, one, we know because of the nature of the Trinity. They're always in agreement. If the Father decides something, Holy Spirit's agreeing with it. Holy Spirit's agreeing with it. The Son is agreeing with it too. They're always in perfect love and unity with one another. But beyond that, in Genesis, when the Lord curses um, the serpent and Adam and Eve, he says to Eve that you'll, like, you'll strike his head and he'll, like, you'll crush his head and he'll strike your heel. And it's like the first message of the gospel. So that even from the very beginning, we know God's telling the world, I'm sending someone to crush the enemy, to crush sin. And so Jesus knew from that time, I'm coming to fulfill this. And he, knowing that, he has to make the choice to submit his will to God all along the way. It's very, very evident throughout scripture. In fact, these are just a few examples. I didn't list everything. His birth as a man, coming as a baby, choosing to come from his glory in heaven to his simple human on earth is his first act of obedience to humble himself and say, I, you know, like to leave everything that he, he possesses. And then his temptation in the desert where he's the Messiah, right? So everybody expects him to come and take kind of rule and control over Israel and redeem everything for the Jews and to deliver everything because that's prophesied and Jesus will come again and he, he will deliver us. But he's tempted in the desert by Satan himself saying, hey, if you just worship me, I'll just go ahead and give you all these kingdoms already. You can go ahead and have the Jews. You can go ahead and have everything right here for you. And Jesus denies it and says, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worship you and I'm not going to take control over all of this. Why? Why did he say that? One, because he's not going to worship the devil, obviously. But two, because it wasn't his time to take rule and control over everything in that way yet. Even though, can you imagine? Like, the devil's like, I'll back off your people. I'll stop tempting them. I'll stop trying to mess up their lives. You can have them. Just have them now. No suffering necessary. No crucifixion necessary. Just go ahead and take it. Can you imagine if you were in that situation? You'd be like, all right, sounds like a good plan. Let's do it. That's what I would do. But Jesus is like, no, I have to go to the cross. Because the cross will mean that not just the Jews, but everyone else, the Gentiles, will also know. They'll also be able to come into my kingdom. And my blood will be enough for them anyway. Can you imagine facing that temptation and pushing it away and being like, no, I have to go to the cross. And then his journey to Jerusalem, every step of the way, as he gets nearer to Jerusalem, he knows what he's headed towards. He knows that he's going to the cross. And there must have been a temptation on some nights, especially after crowds of people pressing in around him, everyone asking for prayer and healing and how draining that is on his energy to just go to the Father and be like, hey, can I turn around? Can I go back? Can I just like, I don't know, just delay this for a little while, but faithfully continues to press into Jerusalem continuously, continuing to go to the cross, even as he knows. He knows when you read the gospel accounts, he knows that the Pharisees are planning his death, right? He knows what they're up to. He knows who's going to betray, betray him in the end when he breaks bread with his disciples. And yet he still allows it to happen. He doesn't try to stop it. He's continually facing temptation and submitting his will to God. Peter, we talked about this last week, where Peter is like, he's describing, I'm the Christ, but that means I have to suffer and I have to die. And Peter's like, no, Lord. And then he's like, get behind me, Satan. 
right? That moment, he could have been like, he could have listened to Peter and be like, you know what? Yeah, I don't really want to go. I don't really want to do that. You're right. Okay. You and me, we're going to gang up on God. <laughs> we're going to go against this. <laughs> but he, with not just like, not just a Peter, like, that can't happen. I really believe when I read this, the force with which Peter, or with which Jesus goes, like, get behind me, Satan, is for his own sake. Because of the temptation that he's been facing. And even now, from someone so close to him, whom he dearly loves, whom he wishes to remain with, says, Jesus, that can't happen to you. And to convict his own will, to continue in the obedience of the Father, get behind me, Satan. You've fixed your mind on things of this world and not on the things of God. And then even then, in the garden, now we're at this place where it's like the ultimate decision. There's making this decision, there's no going back because his... His um, persecutors will come. And in that moment, he could have been like, God, take me away. And legions of angels could have come, saved him, and just destroyed everyone who tried to come bring him into captivity and suffering and crucifixion. If that is what he chose, but that's not what he chose. He chose the Father's will. And what we'll see next week as we go into suffering and crucifixion is his continual choice throughout everything, through mocking, abuse, humiliation, scourging, Them's telling him to save himself off the cross, which he could have done. Him giving his last breath to the Father. Not, not, it doesn't say, and he died. It says he surrendered his spirit. He chose willingly to let go and die. That every step of the way was a willing choice. Why? For himself? Not for himself, but for us. And so that brings me to how this applies to our life. We have a God who has redeemed us, so even in the midst of our sin, we can go before the Father, which is an amazing thing. It restores our intimacy with God. And then we have a God who's shown us how to face temptation. But for us, the question really comes down to the good and the better. Because usually, things are not going to be so outright as this is very right and you should do this and this is very wrong and you should do that. But this is good. And this is good too. But this is good and it will instantly satisfy you. And this is good and we're not really sure where that goes. We don't really know if the payout is going to be that good or not. So just go for what's immediately in front of you. Right? It's like when you're sitting at home and it's like you're about to go to bed. Obviously speaking for myself personally. (laughs) And I'm ready to go to bed. And I'm like, oh, I didn't spend time with the Lord today. I haven't done my devotional. Hmm, I should do that. And it ends there. Like, ah, you know what? I also need to do my laundry. I also really want to play a Scrabble game. And I would really like to do some Sudoku before I go to bed. And you know what? I've worked really hard today. You know, I've worked really hard. I'm sure God wouldn't mind if I just took a moment to myself to rest, relax, kind of untie everything, and then I can meet with him tomorrow. Sounds like a good plan. God cares about me too. But that's not really how it works. (laughs) Both things are good, but one is better. One serves me right away, and one I don't 
immediately see the benefit of. But one will cause me to overflow in life that fully satisfies. And one will only cause me to rest and be satisfied for just a moment. And this is really important because of this, my little diagram. You can deny yourself for the sake of others. And that's what we often think about when we try to follow Christ. So I need to serve others well. I need to love others well. I, I don't want to sin against other people. But then denying yourself is also an aspect for the purpose of Christ. Denying yourself in what instantly gratifies so that you can enjoy Christ. Enjoy relationship with him. Rest in his love. Be built up in that place. And as you grow and you develop and you, you foster love with the Lord, then it overflows into loving other people. It doesn't work the other way around. And more often than not, because of societal expectations and like wanting to be polite to people, it's actually easier to try to serve other people without having met the Lord and to make the good choice. But when I'm on my own and I have to make a better choice rather than something that just serves myself, it's a lot harder because it's unseen. There's no societal pressure or standard. And additionally, it takes a lot of work to build a relationship with someone. And so it's not immediately gratifying, but it's actually more important. Maybe not more important. Both are necessary, but it's vitally important that we deny ourselves for the sake of Christ. Not for us, not just for us, but for the sake of others as well. But it's so insinuous. Like the temptation of the enemy is never like blatant. It's always a choice between what's good and what's better. Now, this is not easy. And so Jesus demonstrates, he actually commands what's necessary in order to fulfill this. In order to face temptation. In order to walk in the fullness of the redemption that he offers. In order to um, take hold of the fullness of life. And to make the better choice. He says to watch and pray. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That last phrase, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, is throughout scripture. And in fact, we read something similar to it last week in the message that David preached from Mark 8. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus in the garden is saying the spirit is weak the, the or the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and then it's pointing back to a time where he says hey there's necessity for you to deny yourself there's a reward at stake and there's a cost at stake as well there's a loss and there's a reward but it's not easy and then we have new testament writers who continue to 
like expand on this theme throughout the New Testament. One is from Philippians. The end, their end is destruction, referring to people who just follow the desires of their flesh. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. If you feel like you've been stuck, numbness to, to righteousness, dissatisfaction with your life, confusion about what to do, hopelessness in your daily grind, death, distance from God, feeling, feeling like you're kind of just like a zombie, and distance from God, it, I'm not saying it absolutely 100% is, but may very be likely to be related to the fact that you focused your mind on the things of the earth and not on the things of God. And then in Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Put to death what is earthly in the whole list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then later on, you must put them all away, even anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Even though these things are difficult to face, when Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To be in the world, have a mindset on the things of the world, and lose his soul. We are reminded of the gravity of these things. It's not just a temporary choice to live in the way I want, or to like, oh, what can the consequences of this be really? It was actually a deadening of your soul, an ultimate death and separation from God, if you don't choose righteousness and, and live in the fullness of what God offers for you. What was really interesting is if we go back to the garden, this phrase, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit. So if we're talking about the good and the better and fighting the temptation in our daily lives, here are the temptations the woman is facing. Something that's good for food, a delight to look at and something that could even make her wise right and then this is referenced actually in the new testament almost in a parallel way in first john do not love the world or the things in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions good for food desire of the flesh delight to the eyes something desire of the eyes right pride in possessions for acquiring wisdom of her own. I mean, there are many different kinds of desires of the flesh and many different things that are delight to the eyes that we shouldn't be fixing on. But here, it's as simple as an apple that seems good to eat. It's as easy to follow an immediate desire like that than, and not know what the long-term ramifications are. Eve never knew that when she ate an apple that she condemn the whole world to death, right? We don't know that our time that we didn't spend with the Lord today will affect the way we behave to our brother tomorrow. The words that come about out of our mouth, whether we build people up in love or tear them down in destruction, whether what we choose to watch today will lead us into greater sin or lead us into freedom in life and fullness of joy. Where we choose to put ourselves, the environment that we surround ourselves with, what kind of entertainment we entertain ourselves with 
where it will lead. What are the consequences of it down the road? Because sin, although it seems okay in the moment, it grows and it leads towards something bigger than just a decision to satisfy myself. Instead, the way out of this, in order to choose the better, is to trust God. Because, he says, if you seek me first, if you seek righteousness, which is the right ways of God, righteousness are the the right ways of God, living in those ways, then everything else that you want to satisfy you, those earthly things, will be added unto you. The things that you need to wear, or having a husband or a wife who's pleasing to you. The things that these things that, that you desire are good things, but if you try to take them outside of my will, they'll end in your ruin, in your failure. But if we trust God and follow his ways, we'll find not only that we overflow in life, that we walk in the fullness of his plans for us, but that also the good things that we desired are added unto us as well. Just some things that we can expect if we're walking in the righteousness of God. Patience, being able to have kindness, humility, weakness. Patience, bearing with one another in love. Oh, that's supposed to say in love. Um, for being able to forgive each other and being able to receive forgiveness. To be at peace. That's the next verse that I didn't put on here. But to be at peace. To be walking in daily gratitude. You know how healthy it is to be walking in daily gratitude? It's actually like, even people who aren't Christians are like, be grateful every day because it adds to your health in a long life. But these are the things that when we're walking in the ways of God, we actually have something to be thankful for because we're reminded of his deliverance, of his redemption, of his healing, of the benefits that he gives to us. That ultimately, it's worth it. That trusting God for the long run rather than turning away from him in the moment is worth it. That we choose the better living on our behalf perfectly in obedience to God, we won't reach perfection. But if we aim for obedience, the purposes of God, which are love and redemption for ourselves and for others, will overflow in our lives. Do you want to live your life in overflow? I do. I want supernatural satisfaction that Paul had when he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Where he was like, I can totally be in prison and be completely happy. I can live my rest of my life in prison and be fully blessed. Or I can die right now and be even more happy. I want to be in that place. I want to live a life of abundance where even if that's my lot to be in prison, even if it's my lot to suffer, even if the choices that I'm making benefit everyone else and they don't benefit me, that I continually walk in the overflow that God offers me. The practical steps, right? we're going to do this, we have to follow through on what Jesus said. Watch and pray. The watching is identifying the good and the better, what's right and what's wrong, what will last me long term, and what will harm me if I just follow it in the short term. But then to follow through on those things, it's not just identifying them, but actually praying, being able to pray and receive the the willpower to go through with our plan, as Jesus did, right? And so, May I watch and pray. (laughs) Teach me your ways. This is where we come to God humbly saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I don't know how to choose what's right from wrong. 
I don't know how to choose the better from the good, if I'm being honest with myself. I'd like to think I have it all under control. I'd like to think I make the right decisions, but honestly, it's too much work. I really don't know. Trying to compute the consequences of everything that I do is like so stressful and impossible. There are so many options. It may seem good today, but it may actually be bad tomorrow. So Psalm 25 is where David actually writes a perfect way to pray through something like this. And we'll just go through it quickly, and I'll summarize it for you so that you have an easy way to remember it. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, that not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait on you shall be put to shame. So here, he starts in his prayer saying, God, I trust you. Whatever you have for me, whatever is my lot, whatever your will is, I trust you. This is where he begins, right? If you begin in that place of trusting God, you're able to receive what he has. If you begin in a place of distrust, you won't be able to receive what he has. And furthermore, you probably won't want it. But you start in this place of trust. This is make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Recognizing, God, you are the one who knows. And you're willing to teach me. So I invite you to come and lead me in righteousness. It's an invitation. So he starts by trusting God. He invites him to take control. In which he's actually giving up his own control to make decisions. He says, teach me and I will follow. If I'm going to follow, that means I've given up my right to determine what's good for myself. And it follows on. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, Lord. He declares, God, you're good. I trust you, and I've submitted myself to you, and now again, I admit that you are good. This was a good decision I made trusting you. Come to think of it. Submitting myself to your ways, hey, this is the best thing I could have done. God is full of steadfast love. And then, good and upright is the Lord. Continually saying that. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Summing it up, that the Lord is not going to abandon those who put their trust in him. That he's good, he's full of steadfast love, and he's willing to lead you because he wants relationship. He wants that intimacy. He wants you to come along the journey. He doesn't want you to be left apart from his goodness. And so he's going to answer this prayer. If you pray like this, you pray like this, and you really mean it. God will come, and he will fill this prayer with his goodness in himself. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. This is the last part we'll go over. For it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. He should shall abide. He should shall abide. <laughs> he shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So here we have him putting his trust in the Lord, and then surrendering himself, inviting God's instruction in his life, declaring God's goodness, and then. He's asking for forgiveness of his sins. Where I haven't followed you, where I've walked in my own will, God, would you forgive me? And now I know, now that I'm right with you and I'm walking your righteousness, I know that my reward 
is going to be abiding in well-being, inheriting the land, and having friendship with you. And there's more. That's not the only promises of dwelling with God, but there's, there's abundantly more than that. But here, David lists three. I want that. I want to abide in well-being and to inherit the land and have the friendship of the Lord with me always. It seems like pretty good motivation. But to sum it all up in a way that's very simple is with a posture of humility in our lives, meaning that I really can't know what's best and I need God. I need God. I need God. That is our confession, humble confession. I need God. We have to perform spiritual CPR. I made an acronym. Dun, dun, dun. Woohoo. First, simply confession. God, here's where I feel like I haven't measured up, but I want to know you more, and I want to measure up. Not because I have to measure up in order to receive your approval, but because if I walk in your ways, it will overflow my life. I forgot. I want to pray repentance. I want to turn from my ways so that I can long-lastingly, steadfastly grow in a Christ-like life. And I want to remember your goodness. I have to remember your goodness. If we don't, it says, for the joy set before him in Hebrews, verse 1 and 2. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, endured the suffering, put off the temptation. What joy? Joy of everlasting fellowship with the people that he's dying to save. Joy of sitting at the right hand of the Father. For us as well, remembering that this process of confession, repentance, humbling myself before the Lord is a forever relationship, God's goodness towards me forever and ever. And that that is what I'm inviting myself into when I perform spiritual CPR. It's good stuff. So we started off by saying, if you feel broken, dissatisfied, restless, there are areas of your life where you feel like, I want better than this. I want my life to overflow. I feel frustrated with where I'm stuck. We have to remember that since God facilitated redemption, that I have healing and restoration for all sin. What Adam failed to do, Jesus did. And now I also can walk in that restoration. Where Jesus faced temptation, he has shown me how to walk into eternal satisfaction and given me the power to also face temptation and enjoy that as well. And that where I feel restless, I don't know my security or my hope for the future, that Jesus has already secured it for me by reconciling me to God and that I have his peace and hope and that I have the hope of a, a good future and a life with him that I can focus on forevermore. No matter what trial I'm facing, no matter what's coming my way, that is my eternal hope and joy and satisfaction. And it may not seem like much now. Simply talking about it doesn't do its justice. I can't simply say, like, you'll have hope and peace and, like, everything will be well with you. Because it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. But it comes down to our faith. Do we believe that God is good? And will he actually do this? The answer is yes. God will. He wants to. And if we say yes and amen to that, we put our faith in it, like David said, we won't be put to shame. He's not going to abandon us and prove us wrong. Like, ha. He's not. He's going to overflow our cup. And if you feel like, hey, you know what? I'm not in this place. 
I feel like I don't have the, the power, I don't have the emotional bandwidth right now in my life to kind of focus on anything like this. I feel like I'm just too overwhelmed and I don't want to make these difficult decisions of submitting my will to God every day. But that's okay. If you feel stirring on your heart, like, yeah, I really want to do that. I feel like this is what God has for me. I want what's more, I want what's better. Then start today. Start today and recognizing the decisions that you make and who you're making them for. But if you're not in that place, if right now it's really hard, it's okay. God is still with you. He's going to walk with you into that place. He's going to lead you into the place where you have the energy and the willpower and the joy and the hunger for him to be able to say yes to that. And that is also part of the amazing hope we have in Jesus Christ, that we have an advocate who knows how hard it is and is willing to stand with us through it all. And that is why I think the Garden of Gethsemane is so interesting. It's why... I'm so glad that Jesus chose to not satisfy his own desires, but to surrender his will to the Father. And why I'm inspired every day that I should also surrender my will to the Father's. Because if Jesus surrendering his will to the Father redeemed a whole world, then me surrendering my will to the Father could very well just maybe bring joy and redemption into the life of someone else and my own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. And first and foremost, you chose us before yourself, Jesus. We thank you that you never made decisions that were in the spur of the moment. You never chose to do anything on a whim. God, but you thought through all the consequences. And you denied yourself and chose the cross on our behalf. We thank you that your will for us is full redemption and restoration. We thank you, God, that you've given us the power to face temptation and the ability to focus on things of God that although we deserve no reward because you did all the work and you still do all the work for us, God, that you promised so many things that overflow our life, goodness, your blessings, your peace, things that will satisfy us, eternal life with you, And rewards beyond that. And Father, we just say that we're not worthy of your love, but we're thankful that you love us. And if we can honor your love by submitting our will to yours every day, then give us the power to do so, God. That we would be able to glorify you and to walk freely with you by enjoying the benefits of your will. So give us that grace today, God. Help us set our eyes on things that will last. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all rise for the benediction. All right. If you can join hands with people across the room. To the God who is able to do far exceedingly more than all you could possibly dream or imagine. May you walk in the grace of his love this week and the power to overcome every temptation that comes your way, to walk in the fullness of the tangible revelation of his goodness in your life and the ability to have victory and to walk in his will. In Jesus' name.